Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Cecilia Mitzmarsh. And we are your hosts. A few months ago, the EADB hosted a webcast entitled Anogenital Warts and Genital Herpes, Myths and Management. Four out of 10 men and women who have genital herpes have no symptoms whatsoever. Today, we will revisit the part genital herpes update in differences in care between men and women with Dr. Peter Greenhouse. But before we do that, did you know that the ADB offers free webcasts every other Wednesday at 2 p.m.? To see what's coming up next, go to eadv.org under education. Members save the added benefit of watching them on demand later. And... If you're not already an EADV member, have you thought about becoming one? Benefit from access to on-demand webcasts, online courses, medical journals, including EADV's esteemed JEADV, over 20 textbooks, reduced fees for congresses and symposia, and much, much more. Just go to EADV.org under membership for more information. Dr. Peter Greenhouse recently retired after 48 years at the NHS and working in private practice along with being a leading exponent of integrated women's sexual health care in the UK. Undoubtedly an expert in the field, let's see what he has to say to update us about genital herpes. So, hi, I'm Peter Greenhouse, uh, former consultant in sexual health in Bristol and Western, and I'm also vice president of the International Society of of infectious diseases and obstetrics and gynecology. I've recently retired from uh, Bristol and this other service in Western, uh, and uh, we're going to update you on genital herpes. We'll talk about transmission, uh, efficiency, and epidemiology. Look a little bit, a little more detail, perhaps, than usual in severe primary herpes, which is becoming much more severe now that HSV1 is the primary cause of genital herpes. We'll talk about antiviral suppression and the importance of tailoring uh, each uh, individual treatment to the individual patient and their circumstances. And then finally, look at the primary difference dermatologically, if you like, between women and men in that uh, women get catamenial recurrences and others recurrences that relate to their menstrual cycle and occur classically just before menstruation because of the altered immunity of the luteal phase of the cycle. So let's have a look at a little bit of epidemiology and transmission efficiency and think of a typical population of Europe, perhaps 400 years ago. Imagine this population excitedly uh, getting on with or getting off with each other. Uh, and if you were to drop a sexually transmitted infection into a population like this, a, an infection which is also transmitted by kissing, what proportion of that population would be affected? Well, I don't think very much has changed in Europe in the last uh, 400 years, and you can see everybody's still enthusiastic. Uh, so our question here is how many of us are infected? So let's have a look at some of the statistics uh, or at least some of the background to this. It's The reason that so many people are affected or infected is because herpes type 1 and 2 is the perfect parasite as defined many years ago by Andrews. Uh, and it, it because it replicates efficiently, it transmits easily, it's there for the rest of your life, and it is rarely severe enough to cause death of the host. Occasionally it does, but that's very, very rare in, uh, in immunocompromised patients with true primary uh, infection. So let's just look at the background to this. 
Uh, there's a study from Germany showing that, uh, that for HSV1, about 78% of men and women averaged out have got uh, evidence of past exposure to type 1. And for type 2, it's different between males and females. Men are, are less likely to get herpes from women than vice versa. Uh, and so not surprising that you would see more women uh, with, uh, with herpes at 20% of blood donors versus males at 9%. But if we put the whole population together, this is work from uh, from Australia, looking at HSV1 and 2, 75% of men and 85% of women by age 40 are uh, have past exposure to herpes type 1. You can see that up to 90, even 95% or so uh, are affected. And if you look at the age group 35 to 44 and look at type 2 HSV plus type 1 antibodies, you can actually see that in women, it adds up to more than 100%, which means, of course, there's a sizable overlap between the two. And if we look at this overlap in pregnancy, about 80% of women have got type uh, 1, 20% have got type 2 with a significant overlap. So what it means at the, bo the, the bottom line here is that 15%, only 15% of women who are pregnant in Switzerland have actually not ever been exposed to type 1 or type 2 herpes. And those are the ones who are most susceptible to really severe disease. Now, the interest, the group I'm most interested in are the uh, women who've got, uh, and I guess also if we were to do the same study amongst men, uh, the men, the people who've got only type 2. And these are the ones that I see, or that we, we assume, have the most uh, obvious and more frequent uh, recurrences. So, the problem is, of course, most people who've got herpes get it from somebody they don't know that they've got it. And if we think of the whole spectrum of herpetic uh, infection, the very there's only maybe about one in 10 of all cases of genital herpes are blatantly obvious. And these are the true primary infections. Then you have uh, an altered uh, scenario where people may have got uh, one type of herpes first and then acquire genital herpes. So if they've had cold sore, type 1 herpes, they then get genital uh, herpes. The symptoms are minor because they've already been pre-exposed. The most interesting group here, perhaps, are the ones who are underneath the clinical horizon. They don't come to you. They have minor symptoms, irritation under the foreskin in men, maybe it's symptoms such as a urinary tract infection or thrush, fungus infection uh, in women, and they assume that they have these infections, take their various different creams or lotions or remedies, they get better, so they congratulate themselves for correctly diagnosing their candidiasis, whereas, whereas in fact, they've actually got herpes. Another interesting group, of course, are the largest of all, four out of 10 men and women who have genital herpes have no symptoms whatsoever. And these people only find out that they've got herpes when they take a new sexual partner who's never been exposed before, who comes down with blatantly obvious severe genital herpes and blames them for knowingly passing it on. Uh, and of course, what people don't realize is that, that, once again, most people have herpes without ever knowing it. So let's think about how the epidemiology is changing over the years. More people have been doing oral sex for, for well, people have been doing oral sex for many years, but with the Safer Sex campaigns 40 years ago with the arrival of, of HIV, um, there was a lot more of it and therefore more transmission of HSV-1. But 
there's a change in the dynamic balance here because family size is smaller, there's better hygiene, so there are far less children who have already been exposed to HSV1, which means that the balance between infected and susceptible has altered and there are many more susceptible individuals. That means there's much more genital herpes uh, of type 1. Uh, in fact, most genital herpes is HSV1. Compared to the older generation, uh, where 85% of the over 50s who had genital herpes had type 2, it, uh, it's completely the opposite way around for younger, uh, younger people. Under 20, 20 years old, 82% is type 1. And that is only going to continue to increase. So what's the importance of this uh, in relation to in your clinical practice? Well, one of the problems is that if you get HSV1, as a primary episode, it's much more severe. Uh, but you have less recurrences, less asymptomatic shedding, and less transmission efficiency. But the, the bottom line, I guess, well, the top line here really is that the, your, these patients are much more likely to end up needing hospitalization with severe disease. But let's look at the transmission efficiency. Let's start by going from male, for, uh, what's more significant in terms of transmission here? We know if we think male to female transmission, type two herpes is seven times more transmissible than type one. And what about female to male? Not so much, but still 2.3 times more transmissible. Now, just for completeness, we really should uh, include the whole gamut of sexualities here. Um, the work, as far as I'm aware, has not been done for female to female transmission. But I would assume, I think most people would assume that HSV1 from cold sores uh, from uh, oral herpes is much more likely to be transmitted because of the higher incidence of cunnilingus. And I don't think anybody's actually done the research on male-to-male uh, -male transmission, but almost certainly because of one of the males being the re bi biologically receptive partner, um, then type 2 herpes almost certainly is, uh, is the most transmissible. Let's turn to severe primary herpes in relation to the fact that type 1 is going to be more likely to present uh, in your surgery. So once again, true primary infection needs hospitalization. You get severe vulval and penile ulceration and some uh, presentations where you get completely unexplained but severe vulval pain. And you will also see this in men with severe rectal pain and no external sign of disease at all. It often, one often makes clinical mistakes by just not thinking that herpes could be more deep-seated or hidden. Uh, we'll talk about sacral radiculitis and urinary retention, which I did some research on many, many years ago at the start of my uh, time as a medical student, and then finally disseminated infection of meningitis. And also to, to flag up something that probably is, is not uh, a problem for men with, uh, with propitial uh, fusion, but certainly if you have severe infection uh, ulceration in young women, uh, you have to work hard to make sure the labia don't get fused. So here's severe primary herpes in a woman, obviously a very, very painful uh, condition. Uh, and the, there were ulcers inside both labia and the labia closed together and no treatment is, is offered. Then as the condition heals, the two labia may get fused together. So these women actually need to be admitted to hospital for meticulous nursing care with saline bathing. And they tend classically to present late, often because they're much younger and more frightened about going to the clinic or they find it more difficult to get to the clinic. It's, it's a rare complication, but it's something that everybody should know about. 
So let's think now about sacral radiculitis and retention of urine. This was the first research I did uh, as a medical student. We were published in The Lancet, which was, uh, uh, which was quite a coup at the time. Uh, but there were two papers published at almost the same time, and both found that women were more likely to present with this than men. The S2 and S3 skin areas are involved, and you also get S4 parasympathetics uh, causing bladder dysfunction. Interestingly, the S4-5 cavernosus reflex is absent. And the critically important point is that because the urinary retention can last between 4 to 20 days, there's not much point doing a urethral catheter in a man or a woman because you won't know when they can actually urinate by themselves. Uh, so we advise that you should use a suprapubic catheter in a, any of these cases. But I, on the various times I'm called to the uh, inpatient ward, the gynecology ward, uh, maybe two or three times a year, nearly all of them have got urethral catheters, which is the wrong thing to do. Once again, these, if they're women, they're much more likely to need uh, treatment uh, or prevention of labial fusion. Uh, here's the paper that, uh, that our American colleagues uh, came up with, just a few months, published just a few months before us, uh, and they had a slightly smaller number of, of patients. But one of the things that they noticed, as we did as well, uh, is the loss of erectile function, which lasts for about the same time as the urinary retention. Now, how useful that is as a physical sign, uh, difficult to say, but at least you can reassure the men that they will get their erectile function back again. So let's come on to something perhaps a little bit more practical and something you will see much more frequently in your, in your practice, uh, antiviral suppression of recurrences and how to tailor the treatment to the individual. So here's the first thing to think of though, is that we, we've taught to, to assume that genital herpes is a sort of, is like an alarm clock going off, you get the tingling sensation and then you get the blisters. Uh, and that's now known not to be the case. Much more, it's like a dripping tap. In other words, you get continuous small amounts of herpes being shed subclinically, no features whatsoever of illness, and then occasionally you get an actual recurrence that you can recognize, either subclinically in the sense that you get a tingling sensation without the lesions, and then, of course, the overt uh, recurrences. But the commonest scenario is asymptomatic shedding, sometimes at very low viral loads, and also at other times at much higher viral loads, has been, which has been demonstrated by the, uh, the Sattel group that are really leading on this. This is one of their studies from Anna Wald, who's the lead researcher there. Large numbers of women taking a PCR test for HSV1 uh, or 2 um, uh, every single day and seeing how many recurrences they had over a 15-week period. Now, if you look at just the women who, took, uh, who had HSV1, 10 of them had no recurrences at all. Two of them had uh, one recurrence and there was one each, two or three recurrences. So this is over a 15 week period. But if we look at the women with type two herpes, well, half of them approximately had no recurrences. 10% of them had 10 or, or more recurrences. So there's this huge variation. Once again, herpes type one, much less likely to recur. So the standard regime, for the most people in the UK use is a cyclovir 400 milligrams BD twice a day. Uh, and uh, also uh, many people are using valet cyclovir 500 milligrams twice a day. I put fam cyclovir in there because it, it, it's, it's prohibitively expensive. So nobody in the UK uses it. Less people I assume in Europe use it, but there's a lot of people in the United States use it, but we'll say no more 
uh, about famcyclovir. Uh, other than the fact you can use it in the short course treatment, but the commonest short course treatment is actually acyclovir, 800 milligrams, three times a day for just two days, two or perhaps three days if you want to. And in order to be able to do this, the women act and the men have to have the treatment in their pocket or in the in their handbag or in their in their car ready to start the treatment absolutely immediately otherwise it isn't going to work valacyclovir also works in much the same way twice daily 500 milligrams for three days and as we've mentioned the famcyclovir can also be used here so we need to think about how to individualize the regimes and also what to do about a combining episodic treatment and suppression in a way that suits the patient's needs. So let's have a look at the, the, uh, the, the pharmacokinetics here of valacyclovir. We're looking at a situation where uh, if, if, if compared to the, uh, to the excretion of, uh, of acyclovir, which is shown in the white, on the, on the far side of the screen. Uh, Valacyclovir has, has uh, reaches a Tmax of two, two hours, but has a half-life of 10 to 12 hours. So it's much more useful than acyclovir, which is only on board for two to four hours. But of course, you then have a period towards the right-hand side of the screen where there is no treatment during which recurrences can occur. If we now think of, of, of the, a smaller number of patients who will get recurrences during that time, you could go for twice daily treatment. Uh, and I, uh, quite a few of my patients are on this. And I have two or three patients who will get their recurrences just at this little window here at about 10 hours, eight to 10 hours into their disease. And the only way to treat these women uh, is to go, uh, sorry, is, is to go for a three times a day regime, but very few uh, patients actually need this. So let's think of how you could prevent herpes transmission. Well, for discordant couples, this was a big study done, uh, done many years ago, uh, enormously expensive study, looking at what would happen between discordant couples if you gave one of them valacyclovir 500 milligrams once a day. In those who didn't use condoms, the transmission rates were 4.6% over uh, an eight-month period for placebo and 1.8% for valacyclovir over the same time. But for those who use condoms, we can see that the figures are much lower, 2.2% for those on placebo and 0.5% for those using condoms and valacyclovir for eight months. So that's only one in 200 transmissions. Uh, however, finding this very highly selected groups of, of, of couples was, was very difficult. Uh, and it's unfortunate that no matter what you do, eventually in a long-term relationship, it's highly likely that herpes will be transmitted. So finally, then, let's just come to something that absolutely differentiates men from women, is that, uh, is that women have catamenial recurrences because they've got cyclically variable hormones which alter their immune system. So let's have a little look at this. There are no guidelines on premenstrually recurrent herpes, but women who are getting into their perimenopausal years, into their mid-30s and 40s, before menopause itself, um, will be very commonly affected because their, their cyclical fluctuation of hormones alters. Uh, and it sometimes, it sometimes occurs at the same time as severe premenstrual syndrome. So one of the most obvious things that people have been doing is taking, is, is for women who present with this, simply to give them antivirals just before each period, maybe for a week or maybe 10 days before each period. And that's a very successful way of treating uh, these women. But I think we can go one stage further. We can do better. 
Uh, if we think of the, the history of this, uh, when Didier and Dorian wrote their classic Les Herpes Genitaux uh, back in 1886, three quarters of their women uh, were women who kept on coming back presenting premenstrually, and they called it a bouton de règle, lovely uh, description uh, of how you get this catamenial uh, herpes. And if you think about it, if you have any physical or mental symptom that has a precise repeating cyclical variation, it must have a hormonal cause. So it, theoretically, it could have a hormonal solution. Now, this has enormous biological plausibility, but there are unfortunately no randomized controlled trials to prove it um, because uh, of the paucity of research, women falling down between dermatology, sexually transmitted infections, gynecology, uh, uh, and whatever. So there is another way to look at this, is that you could actually, if you had women who had any dermatological condition uh, and had very severe cyclically recurrent problems, you could just wait for natural menopause, which I don't think would be acceptable, or you could go for hysterectomy, oophorectomy, which is a, a, very, a very drastic uh, possibility, but would certainly work. Perhaps slightly more acceptable would be a medical menopause, depending on how severe the condition is. But perhaps the most civilized way of treating these women is to treat them with a, with a transdermal estrogen gel or a patch uh, every day uh, and uh, a levonorgestrel IUS, the Mirena hormone coil. Now, this is very standard management in gynecology now. So let's think of what you could do in dermatology. Well, apart from oral and genital herpes, which occur in the luteal phase, there are 15 other dermatological conditions which are likely to recur in uh, the luteal phase, some of them just immediately before menstruation. And there are some examples of dermatologists who have co combined or collaborated with their gynecologists uh, to improve the treatment, but not very many people do. So let's just have a little look at uh, what's happening in the perimenopause. You go from minor mood changes in premenstrual syndrome to much more severe premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And if we think of, 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 of how women are so much more interesting hormonally than men, men are simple creatures. They need only a few things to keep themselves happy. And remember, of course, a man has a stable testosterone environment, so their, their mood shouldn't change. They have no excuse for being moody, whereas women are biologically programmed, if you like, uh, some of them much more than others, of course, depending on genetic susceptibility. So let's have a think about these premenstrual syndromes. How would you recognize these women in your clinic? Well, they have cognitive and mood problems, of course. They have menstrual difficulties. Uh, they have also joint aches and muscle pains, sciatic and arthritis, which are also estrogen uh, dependent. Um, and they have, uh, of course, recurrent dermatological complaints. Now, you might also recognize them because they are really very, uh, very anxious about their condition, they are they're unable to multitask, unable to cope, and they can you know, present with great, uh, with great anger as well. So how do we deal with this sensibly? For, certainly for herpes. So you could just treat the symptom uh, which, with which you'd simply give premenstrual acyclovir suppression, perfectly fair enough regime. Or you could decide to treat the cause and suppress the cycle or ablate the cycle, treat their perimenopausal symptoms and use transdermal estradiol uh, with an IUS. Uh, and we did a, a proof of concept study over many, many years because these women are fairly few and far between that they come to one individual clinician with an interest. We simply stopped, once once we'd taken their histories, we stopped giving them acyclovir and started them on estrogen, which is transdermal 17-beta estradiol. Uh, had a, uh, a continuously, they had a coil in place, but luteal phase would not. And here's the ITT analysis. You don't need to go through all this. The red, the red 
uh, boxes simply show where they had recurrences uh, and they were expected to have theoretically 135 recurrences and you can see how substantial the reduction was. These are the patients who forgot to take their treatment and so the ITT analysis uh, was that there was a very substantial reduction in premenstrual syndrome and also in herpes uh, which was highly significant with the student's t-test. So when I look this up in the um, uh, literature search there's nothing about uh, cyclical herpes in the English-speaking literature. It's fascinating. But if you type in herpes catamenial, in, in all the Romance languages, you will find that this is taught in medical schools. So I'm talking to a European audience. You guys know a lot more than me uh, or many of my uh, UK-based or English-speaking colleagues. So the, the, real answer, the, re the real answer to this is to do your research in other languages other than just English and publish in other languages as well. Okay, so how would you manage recurrent genital herpes that's cyclically recurrent? Use transdermal estradiol and IUS. Use a whole woman approach because their premenstrual syndrome will get better as well. Recognize their perimenopausal symptoms. The bottom line here is treat the cause, not the symptom. Now, the next question obviously comes is, could you apply this in dermatology? Well, we know that uh, certainly for the, the re premenstrual recurrences, about 20% of all women with lupus uh, get exacerbations premenstrually. For Bechet's, it's 44%. And for hydradenitis, suppurativa, and acne, nearly all uh, women who've got those conditions, they will get worse before menstruation. So the obvious potential solution, if you can combine with your local gynecologist, is to treat the trigger and the disease, if you can. So let's do some take-home messages. First of all, let's think, well, most of us have got herpes anyway. We don't, without knowing it, we get it from people who don't know that they've got it. If you have oral type one herpes, it hides genital type two uh, symptoms and you can easily get both infections. Now, genital type uh, HSV one is much more common, much more severe primary presentation. It's very rarely recurrent and less transmissible, which is the only bit of good news about it at all. And you should adjust the antiviral suppression to your individual need and finally, Manage catamenial herpes and perhaps other catamenial dermatoses hormonally if you possibly can. I hope that's been interesting enough for you and I wish you well. Stay safe, but don't overdo it. Thank you very much indeed. So that was just some of the information he presented during the webcast. Some pretty important information. And there's more where that came from. As you may have noticed, Dr. Greenhouse spoke about a couple of articles and mentioned some of the figures shown during the webcast. EADV members can watch the webcast in its entirety on the EADV eLearning platform to get all of the information. Webcasts like this one are available on demand for EADV members as part of the EADV Learning. For more information about membership, go to eadv.org. We thank Dr. Greenhouse for making such important information available, and we would like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts to make sure you get the newest episodes delivered right to you. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. Until the next episode, take care of your skin.